Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well-being of your staff to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, chairman of the Sound Agency and five-time TED speaker with over 100 million views for my TED Talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. We spend the vast majority of our lives indoors, but we were designed by millions of years of evolution to operate in a very different environment, in nature. Most buildings ever built have been purely practical, primarily shelters against weather or danger. Over the millennia, the growing need for palaces and public buildings gave rise to the concept of building design for aesthetics as well as function, and to the profession of architect. But, as with so much in the field of design, the emphasis fell more and more on the eyes. As the number of public buildings mushroomed, cities sprang up, and a distance grew between the bulk of humanity and the natural world. Building materials were more and more man-made, and nature struggled to maintain anything but a token foothold in urban environments. And as masses of humanity commuted from concrete apartment blocks to concrete office buildings, something got lost. Our connection to nature. Well, today I'm talking to an expert and a leader of the exciting movement in architecture to re-establish that connection. Oliver Heath is an architectural and interior designer who focuses on human health and well-being in the built environment. Much of his work is in the new field of biophilic design, which sets out to improve the human connection with nature. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation as much as I did. Oliver, where are you speaking from at the moment? I'm speaking from my office, which is in the middle of Brighton, down on the south coast. Uh, it's a big converted church space, so very high ceiling, so you hear a little bit of an echo, and it's next to a little bit of a noisy road next door, so if you hear the occasional moped or car going by, that's what's going on. Well, the scene is set, and I can hear that little bit of reverberation yeah. there in the background. You may also hear a few seagulls as well, because we're not that far from the sea. Which are some people's bet noir, other people love them. Seagulls tend to divide people quite radically, depending on whether your chips are stolen every time. <laughs> Definitely. They are very, very cheeky and quite noisy if you're trying to do any sound recordings. But I kind of love them. Uh, people get quite jealous when you have the window open in the summer and they hear the seagulls. And they're like, imagine you just sort of sitting around on the beach. Now, you're recognized globally, Oliver, as an expert in biophilic design. So perhaps you could explain a little bit more about what biophilic design actually is? Yeah, so biophilia quite literally means a love of nature. And it was a term that was uh, popularized in the 1980s by um, Edward O. Wilson, who recognized society's departure away from rural dwellings and into city centers, and many physiological and psychological problems that came from that. So that basic idea of, of humans having a desire uh, and an attraction to be in and around nature was developed initially by Stephen Kellett, who's one of the godfathers of biophilic design. And what he did is he took that idea and created a set of patterns that allowed us to enhance our human connection to nature in buildings and the built environment in general. 
And I think what is interesting is that he recognized that there are many stresses and strains on people in buildings. Uh, many buildings can be both physically and mentally exhausting. But that when we spend time in nature, it has this incredible ability to recuperate us from that exhaustion and to help reduce stress, but also to connect people. So the patterns that were created and that define biophilic design, essentially kind of there are three key aspects to it. The first is what we call a, a direct connection to nature. So that's how we bring real forms of nature into buildings like plants and trees and light and fresh air. The second is an indirect connection to nature, which is how we mimic or evoke a feeling of nature. And the third is the human spatial response. It's recognizing that as human beings, we are part of nature itself and that we need to feel both relaxed and restored and safe, but also energized and stimulated. And uh, biophilic design can help deliver all of that. The question I've got then for you, you're an architect, and I don't know if you've seen my TED talk where I kind of berate architects for being obsessed with how things look and also indeed for being obsessed with artificial um, surfaces. How much of an inroad is biophilic design making in the architecture profession where people tend to love things like steel and glass and stone? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? That like many people, when you speak to architects and ask them, you know, to think of a space where they feel most happy, calm and relaxed, many of them won't think about their own homes, their own offices or their own buildings, but will tend to revert to a sort of stereotypical space in nature, very often containing water uh, and trees and grassland and sunshine and skies and clouds. So it's interesting that whilst they recognize that nature is where they feel most happy, calm, relaxed, they don't design their buildings in the same way, that the building has to conform to a completely different approach. So I think for a long time there, there has been this particular focus on the visual importance of architecture. But increasingly what we are seeing is uh, a greater understanding of the role that nature has to play in our cities, in our neighborhoods, our streets, and also around and inside our buildings. So we are seeing this kind of real emergence of understanding of the role that nature plays and, and how we might start to integrate it in. In particular, you know, see the works of Stefano Berry, Thomas Heatherwick, uh, and the Vietnamese architect Vo Trong Nguyen, who are doing some fantastic work and, and really demonstrating innovative ways of bringing green infrastructure, into cities, enhancing biodiversity, but also making that human nature connection. So it is starting to happen. And I think architects are increasingly thinking in a more multi-sensory way of, of how um, the built environment can not just please and delight, but also nurture and support. Which is really important, of course. I mean, I saw a recent survey, which we've been quoting ourselves at the Sound Agency, that we spend only 7% of our lives outdoors on average in the Western world now, which is um, making the way we design the indoors rather important. 93%, well, I think 6% is in the car. <laughs> That's a different subject altogether, but 87% of our lives in the built environment. So the way that affects us is obviously crucial. And yet there is this strange disconnect between what people love, and as you say, even architects would love uh, to be in natural spaces and the way we design 
our buildings. Why do you think it went so off track? I mean, where did it go off track? Uh, where did the, the, the design of buildings take leave of the natural delights of, of the biophilic approach? Well, I think it could be traced back to the Industrial Revolution and that sort of mass movement of people from rural dwellings uh, into city centres. And, you know, human beings are very adaptable. They are able to live in many different situations. I think what we've forgotten is that many spaces in the built environment don't necessarily help deliver the intended and function. So whilst we can work in these spaces, we may not be working at our best. So since that, that mass movement to city centres, that's continued. And I think by 2050, 60% of the world will be urbanised. So we're seeing an enormous number of people being squeezed into ever smaller spaces in cities. And I think enormous sense of undervaluing the role that nature plays, um, both in our, in our own lives, but also in managing the wider natural environment and, and the impact it has on the climate crisis that we're now starting to experience. And I think from a very personal level, everybody is now recognizing that that time spent indoors does have a very deep impact on their physical and mental well-being, particularly because of the likes of COVID, where we've stopped having that diversity of experiences of the built environment. We're not commuting. We're not going to cafes and shops. We're maybe not going to offices, cinemas, restaurants. You know, we're at home. We're, we're looking around us. We're feeling that maybe our homes aren't serving us in the way that we hoped they would. Maybe they're not serving us in the new normal where we don't have that, that richness and diversity of spatial environments and, and personal experiences. And, and as a result, I think because of that sort of focusing in, it's condensed our understanding that, you know, if I'm going to be spending, like you say, around 90% of my life indoors, and if in all, all of that time is going to be at home, wow, it's really affecting me. And so I think we've seen a lot more people getting out, spending time in nature, exercising, walking, using nature as a support within the more conventional built environment. And I think there's definitely been a raise in interest and understanding of the value that nature plays in all our lives. And I think as we start to move back, we'll understand that, that when we talk about sustainable buildings, it's not just going to be a carbon-centered conversation, but it's going to have to be a human-centered one that focuses around health and well-being, and in particular, the role that nature plays and, and the role that biophilic design plays not for the sake of bringing plants and greenery back into our cities, but also to support our physical and mental well-being. So there perhaps is a hidden benefit from the hideous COVID experience that everybody's gone through in that we've rediscovered something of the importance of, of nature. Now, for architects listening to this or anybody listening to this and thinking about their home, the, the trite phrase is bringing the outdoors indoors, but it, it's a bit more than that, isn't it? I mean, it's not just about sticking a plant wall up in an office or uh, putting a pot plant in your living room. So is it that simple or what are the mistakes people tend to make when they, they start focusing on biophilic design? Well, like you say, I think a lot of people believe that biophilic design is just about adding more plants. And I'm, I'm guilty myself to a certain extent. I'm sitting in an office with about 90 plants. And at the moment, when my staff are working from home, 
Uh, I do have a very high plant to person ratio, which is no bad thing until it comes to watering and maintenance. But <laughs> biophilic design is actually much more than that. It, it's not about bringing plants in. It's about reinforcing that human nature connection to recognize the many benefits that nature brings to us. And in a way, there are two different approaches to it. There is a new neuroscientific approach that, that, that recognizes that when we spend time in nature, it makes us feel great. You know, it lowers heart rates and blood pressure levels. Uh, we feel more relaxed, more able to, to get on with tasks. We feel more resilient and able to deal with your know, bumps in the road. But there's also a wider uh, socio-psychological approach, which is the one that uh, Stephen Kellett devised, which is much more about recognizing that connection to space and place and also people within that place and the role that nature has to enhance those connections. And it kind of suggests that when we are in spaces with lush, healthy, diverse, thriving natural elements, it makes us feel better, more relaxed, more calm, more open and optimistic. And when we're in those states, we have far better connections with both the places around us, because they make us feel good, but also with the people around us. So nature is good for us personally, but also in our connections to places, spaces, and I think importantly to people and the formation of communities. So to take a wider sort of overview, biophilic design is really about how we realize the intended function of a space and deliver it better. So, so essentially, you know, we have improved outcomes, but reduced negative costs. Now, this clearly is working across all the senses because we experience the world in five senses all the time. Well, or, or dozens, if you want to get mm. really granular about more, it. Yeah. Yes. But the, the five, you know, commonly accepted major ones, this isn't just about looking at plants. Presumably the smell, touch, taste, and sound of the natural environment all play a part. So perhaps you could speak a little bit about the senses mm. in the context of biophilic design. Yes. So this is really interesting. And we talk more and more about the value of the senses uh, in the designs that we create. It goes back to the fact that biophilic design is an evolutionary design ethos that we not just evolved, but we survived, thrived, and flourished in healthy natural environments. And those are absolutely essential to support us so when we were in these spaces, we used all of our senses in order to track down food, to see potential opportunities, but also to recognize potential threats. So we used our sight, our smell, uh, the sense of, of sound, and even taste to survive, thrive, and flourish. Fast forward several thousand years, and we now find ourselves in very dense geometric urban environments where there is a, like you say, a particular focus on the visual. But still we have the incredible opportunity to enrich one's daily experiences of the built environment through the senses. So we believe it's really important that we recognize the role that they play in the contemporary environment and that we still have a, a great opportunity to enhance that experience through the introduction of elements that not just soothe and relax, but also nurture and stimulate and inform the occupant of the building. So thinking very much about, about the haptic quality of the space and, and, and mapping out that sense of touch as we enter through a building, both with what we feel in our hands, but also underfoot and through the skin. Um, thinking about the way the space smells, 
And of course, equally about the way the space sounds and the enormous impact that has, because, you know, we now live in a very unnatural environment. And, and previously, when we were working from offices, they were enormously noisy and distracting spaces. And we've tended to assume that one size fits all, that everybody can just work in these busy, noisy environments and just deal with it. And what we're now starting to understand more and more is that we should be looking at neurodiversity and, and people's sensory thresholds uh, and looking at how we can create spaces that support a, a wider cross-section of the working population within the workplace in particular. Well, absolutely no argument from me. I did a BBC Radio 4 documentary a couple of years ago called The Curse of Open Plan, which <laughs> focused on exactly that kind of impact. And I think, you know, your point about neurodiversity is very, very important one because people are not the same. Nevertheless, I do think it's also true to say that the the way that we've kind of cookie cut open plan office layouts all over the world, billions of square feet of it, is actually blighting the lives of millions and millions of people. The average person is having productivity reduced, stress levels increased and so forth by that kind of design. So it's it's a ray of light really to hear you talking about architects who are paying attention to this and understanding the relationship between what we have evolved to expect and the artificial environment we've imposed on people and how we can improve that. And that to me, Sounds like that's at the heart of biophilic design. Is that is that really what it's all about? Yes, absolutely. It's a human-centered approach to the design of the built environment that you know, primarily focuses on well-being. We zero in on this one particular aspect of biophilic design of how we can enhance that connection to nature. And of course, that does act as a sort of overarching umbrella to, to many of the other sort of features of well-being, things like air quality, noise, hydration, food, movement, many of those other things. So, so those sort of things can be incorporated into a really good, holistic approach using biophilic design. And we now have technology at our disposal to create buildings which are smart, of course, responsive, and can change according to occupancy or the tasks that people actually want to carry out in any given space. Does that also play a, a role in the future of biophilic design? Yes, absolutely. I think there are so many amazing technological advances that are really helping to recognize the, the multi-sensory ways that, that nature can improve our built environment and start to integrate that into buildings in all sorts of ways. So, it, you know, it could be about advances in technology in the design and manufacture of materials. Over the last few years, I've been working with Carpet Manufacture Interface and uh, been speaking on their behalf about biophilic design and also their biomimetic approach to the design of, of something as simple as a carpet tile, which takes its inspiration from the spray of the seashore or, or uh, leaves on a forest floor or moss growing up through cobblestones. And they recreate these kind of biomimetic patterns that then get integrated into the workplace. So in a way, it's about the design process and also their ability to use developments in technology to create randomized colors and patterns that have a very naturalized biomimetic feel. The other way that we're seeing it is quite literal representations of it through both visual, acoustic, olfactory ways. And those are becoming ever more sophisticated. We've been working with a company recently that has been mimicking natural light and they create these ceiling panels that when you stand under them, 
the quality of light is, is so direct, it creates a shadow, and it's so convincing that it actually feels warm. And it's very difficult to disconnect one's visual sense from the, the, the haptic quality of the light because you expect to feel warm in it. it. It's sort of amazing what is happening. You know, it's one of the most exciting areas of how we mimic and evoke that feeling of nature using advances in technology. I find it so, so fascinating, so exciting. We're certainly very excited about it with the developments with Moodsonic, where we can do things like uh, seasonalize, if that's a verb, mm. um, a sound, so that um, you have different sounds in the spring, winter, autumn, summer. Uh, you can have different sounds day of the week, different sounds at time of the day, perhaps birdsong in the morning when the dawn chorus is happening, everybody wants to wake up, and something more relaxing in the evening. So that's it's absolutely something that we believe is very important, and it's, it's going to be amazing to consider buildings where this is happening in all the senses, in a congruent, scheduled, and responsive way, so that it's not somebody with a, a mixing desk putting scenes in. It's a building responding to what people want to do in a relatively automatic fashion. That's a very exciting prospect. Mm, I think. I, you know, I really like that. One of the things that we talk about a lot is, is people's circadian rhythms. And our circadian rhythms are essentially our body's reactions to periods of light and dark across a 24-hour day. It affects our mood, our behavior, and also, and importantly, our hormone release of melatonin and serotonin, which are the sleep-wake hormones. So our circadian rhythms are, are largely affected by our exposure to natural light and the subtle nuances that we see throughout the day, uh, from, from blacks and inky blues to oranges and yellows in the mornings and the stimulating blue light in the middle of the day, and then as it reverses back into the evening. And, and it affects how we feel and we sleep. Now, this is... I think one of the most well-known visual rhythms that we have that control our sleep-wake cycles and our health and well-being. But we believe that, that that rhythm also exists in other localized ways that we don't tend to recognize quite so much. And it was it's really interesting to talk to you and Evan about the work that you're doing and that and essentially the sort of circadian rhythms that happen in an acoustic way that how we there is actually a dawn chorus there are noises that we hear in the middle of the day whether it's birds or motorbikes or seagulls but also moving through into the evening and this different sort of soundscape that we get that sort of defines our day and yet it's sort of an undercurrent that we don't necessarily log into because we we become habitualized to it and it's only when we start to do recordings and things and we capture it, they go, oh, I'd never realized that, you know, there's, there is a rhythm to the acoustic environment. I've been doing lots of recording here in my office because we're writing an online course on biophilic design for the home. And I've recognized that I can't do any voice recording in the late afternoon from about 3.30 onwards to 5 because the noise, the traffic increases so much, I just can't do any uh, acoustic recording. So there is a little bit of a rhythm there, albeit, you know, an automatic, uh, a built environment, uh, human engineered one. But this idea of the rhythms that happen in our life across all the senses, I think is, is a really rich theme to explore. Definitely. I have the same thing happening at three o'clock, but that's called my six-year-old daughter returning home, <laughs> which <laughs> definitely precludes audio recording after that time. And I think the interesting thing here is the way in which all of these sensory inputs work individually or globally. And this is largely about association, uh, certainly in my experience with sound. Sound works largely by association. And I'm sure that's true also of, for example, smells. You know, if you had a, a memory of the smell of your grandmother's house or something like that, if you get a waft of that, suddenly you're back there. These things are enormously deep and uh, they 
they reawaken synaptic pathways which are dormant but can be re-energized at a moment's notice. So we have to be very careful about the sensory inputs that we put into spaces, whether that be sound or smell or color indeed. Some of them are universal. So, you know, we mentioned the birds and certainly anybody who's been at an all night party and then the birds start singing at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, there's that moment of, I shouldn't be here because that's associated with being bright and early and getting up and all those kind of things. So there are some universal ones. I've only ever met one person in my life who didn't like birdsong. However, a lot of this is individual. Now, how do you factor that in when you're designing environments uh, for large groups of people, office spaces or healthcare spaces or educational spaces, whatever they may be? How do you factor in people's personal taste? Yes, I mean, that is really difficult, isn't it? Because you may have 10, 20, dozens or, or hundreds of people in a building. And I think what's really important about biophilic design is that there isn't a one size fits all. I think it's important to recognize that there are a series of patterns that need to be applied in a relevant and localized way so that people can make that connection between maybe the plants, the views, the materials they're seeing and some experience they've had that they can draw on. Because essentially what we're trying to do with biophilic design is to trigger a memory and to elicit a similar a physical and emotional response to that feature uh, from the person and to put them in a better state of mind to undertake whatever task it is that they're trying to, to create. So we try to go into as much detail as possible to understand the local environment and what those particular elements or patterns might be that we can draw on to make it as relevant as possible. So for me, that, that's kind of really interesting way of looking at perhaps a more sort of sensory vernacular and how we can integrate that into the built environment. So are there any kind of universal positives, things that on balance, the vast majority of people respond well to? Is it green? Is it trees? Is it birdsong? Is it running water? Are there any things to avoid? And any old wives' tales? I mean, we always come across the thing of running water making people want to go to the toilet, which may be true for some people, but it does not mean every time you approach a stream, you have to yeah. run off. So I'm fascinated to know, are there any universal positives or, or negatives that you've come across? <laughs> Um, let's see. Well, we get asked to introduce planting. Of course, it's one of the first things that people ask. You know, we want to put localized planting in. And, yes, and they say, well, to be honest, we live in the Northern Hemisphere. A lot of the plants that you find outside don't want to be living inside. So the plants that we would need to specify are probably tropical. If you think about it, it's kind of obvious because they like more consistent sort of temperatures and humidity levels and not the sort of seasonal variations that we have. So there is a little bit of a discord there. And then they go, oh, so the plants are tropical. Okay, but we live in, I don't know, Manchester, for instance. So th that that is sort of difficult. We have to sort of ease people around to understanding that. There are different ways that we can introduce different types of planting schemes, but generally the plants that we'd introduce inside are not localized plants. Going beyond that, it might be looking towards the local environment, looking at whether there are particular features, particular rock types, timber types. Uh, are there things that people mention? I think what's important in our approach is that we do try to undertake a pre-occupancy evaluation of a space, both in the quantitative factors, so the things that we can measure, you know, temperature, 
natural light, humidity, air quality, but also the qualitative aspects and really just sit down with people and ask them how a space makes them feel. Uh, what are the triggers that make them feel good? Do they have good conversations with people? Does a space make them feel that they want to do that? Do they feel like they're engaged and valued? And how are they sleeping? So, so trying to balance up some of the quantitative aspects with the qualitative to create a really good, well-rounded picture of what it is that a design needs to do. And if there are particular triggers or, or kind of issues that we need to resolve or triggers that we can rely on to draw them for people and work on that in order to deliver the best space. That's very interesting because we've discovered the same two things in, in our work in the installations we've done so far. A, make it local as far as possible so that you, you are reflecting an environment that people understand and have some relationship with already and not doing something that's dramatically out of context unless that's deliberate. And B, listen to people, give them some role in this. I remember a wonderful survey of people in an old people's home which found that when they were consulted about the colours of the walls that were going to be repainted, they had radically improved outcomes, could remember who the Prime Minister was and what day of the week it was and so forth. Suddenly they became more present because they'd actually had some role to play in the way the place looked and felt as opposed to being passive and uh, just told what was going to happen. And certainly that seems to be an important factor when designing any space for a large group of people. Is that something you found as well, the importance of involving people in what's going to happen? Yes, absolutely. I think as we, we charge steadily forwards with technology and automated buildings, we forget that actually people do like to have some control over their immediate environment, whether that's the acoustic, whether it's the, the, the temperature, the natural light that's coming into the space. And I think it's really, really important that we don't forget people can play a significant role in, in creating greater well-being for themselves if you give them the opportunity to do that. So I agree. I completely agree. And, uh, you know, it can, it can happen in lots of ways. It can be about, you know, managing the level of light on your desk. It could be about choosing to work in a quieter or noisier environment. It could be as simple as having a plant that you're given to look after. And maybe it's one plant within a larger scheme where you don't look after all of them, but you're given one. So I think there are a number of ways of doing that. And I think, like you say, it's a leading cause of workplace dissatisfaction to be completely out of control of one's environment. So finding ways of, of integrating people's reactions to the environment and giving them some control, we believe is really important. And it starts with a pre-occupancy evaluation and hopefully goes on through the design process uh, and, and ultimately measures some success of those through a post-occupancy evaluation where we can actually compare from the baseline to demonstrate the real value of what we're doing as designers. Well, that's lovely to hear an architect talking about post-occupancy because um, over the years, certainly um, some of the years in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, there was an approach of designing buildings and walking away and forgetting people were going to be in there and having feelings about it. So I think that's, that's really refreshing. And now we're on that subject, what are the outcomes and effects of a biophilic design approach on the people in the buildings generally? Mm -hmm. Well, I should just go back a little bit, actually, because it's interesting. We, we did a project recently with the Building Research Establishment in Watford, where we undertook a, a pre-occupancy evaluation of an existing building. And what was really interesting was the differences that the study showed up. So quantitatively, 
the building that had been there for 20 years, it seemed that, that actually the light levels were about right, uh, that the air quality was okay because everything had off-gassed, that the acoustics were all right, the thermal issues were okay. But when you spoke to people, actually people were really unhappy. They said it was tired, it was old, it, it smelled a bit stale, the light was too bright in some areas and not bright enough, but of course that sort of leveled out in the, in the quantitative survey. So getting the balance between the quantitative and qualitative bits is really important and, and the results that it showed were completely different. And ultimately, what we're realizing now is that is that when we get it right and when we, we create that right balance of well-being and biophilic design in the built environment, it can have enormous benefits to the building typologies that are so important in our lives. So across the board, every building type seems to be improved when we increase that, that sense of nature. In education settings, it can increase the speed of learning. It can reduce absenteeism. It can improve test results. In healthcare scenarios, we can see that actually when, when there are views onto nature, it can reduce the uh, recuperation times by 8.5%, reduce the need for pain care medication. Patients feel happier. They feel less pain. It's good for doctors and nurses to, of course, be less stressed. In the workplace, we've seen that that enhanced level of nature can improve productivity between 6 and 15% depending on which studies you see. It can reduce absenteeism, which of course is a negative cost for employees. It can make people feel more connected with one another. So it can enhance that sense of community, which can then in turn lead to, to innovation within an organization because you've encouraged people to meet and stop and talk uh, and share ideas. And even in hospitality settings, we've seen that actually when there are good views and views are enhanced from hotel rooms, people want to book those rooms more quickly, are prepared to pay up to 23% more. Uh, and equally, people want to spend more time in biophilic hotel lobbies where they feel relaxed and calm. And of course, when they spend more time, they're likely to spend more money and hang out, eat and drink and socialize and make the space feel more alive. So I think what we're seeing is across the board where Elements of nature are installed. It has the ability to make people feel more calm and relaxed, more refreshed and restored. It creates a greater diversity of spaces. And the net impact of that is people feel happier and more able to deliver on that intended function of the space. So you get a better outcome. Um, and the outcome, I think, is often measured <clears throat> with some sort of financial remuneration, you know, what's the payback period? What, what's the sort of percentage increase in productivity? But we forget that actually the other outcome of it is, is human health and well-being. And what can be more important than that? Other than, of course, that, that if we design buildings that have an enhanced connection to nature, and when, as a result, we feel more connected to that sense of nature, it does lead us to a greater empathy and desire to protect our wider natural environment. So essentially, you know, our health and well-being is intrinsically linked to, to the, the health and well-being of nature around us and in our planet. So, you know, the benefits go far beyond just the bottom line. It, it is definitely about realizing the benefits to people, productivity, and the planet. That's brilliant. And so what I'm hearing is that for hard-nosed financial people, there's a return on investment which will easily pay for these installations. I mean, I've read somewhere that a 5% increase in productivity pays for an entire building. So it doesn't take much. And you're talking about increases that are well above that level. So purely financially, a great return. Second level, we've got health and well-being, which, as you say, uh, 
have to be part of sustainability now. You know, you can have a wonderfully sustainable building by shutting all the windows, reducing the air conditioning and making it carbon zero. <laughs> people suffocate. So um, exactly. the people yeah. have to be factored in there. We've got to make buildings sustainable for people and, and enhance well-being. And that certainly is up the agenda with many leading organizations in the world today. Their well-being is something they recruit on. It's something they... Uh, talk about it's a it's a major metric for how well they're doing their job so that's the second level and the third level is for the planet which is wonderful to hear that we sensitize people to the relationship with nature and there maybe those people go out and hold the world more gently in their hands so on every level this appears to be the way forward what interests me about all of this Oliver is how real it has to be. I mean, you've mentioned hospitality and views from hotel rooms, for example. If you were to put screens outside the windows of every hotel room and, uh, like Basil Forty, project the herds of wildebeest <laughs> roaming, roaming across the, yeah. the plain, yeah. despite the fact you're in Topness or wherever, yeah. um, would that work? I mean, does it have to be real? Because a lot of what you've said has been symbolic. It's been establishing symbols which regenerate memories or um, associations. How real does it have to be? Yeah, this is a really fascinating question. And it's one that I do get asked quite a lot by architects, in part because I show them a series of images and the CPDs I present. And some of my, my images do have artificial green walls. And they'll see it and go, that's beautiful. I'll say, actually, it's artificial. And they'll all sort of recoil away because say, the idea of using artificial forms of nature is shocking to them. Other than, of course, most of the wood floors that you walk on are, of course, artificial. Lots of the surfaces represent nature, but we decide that they are a suitable and acceptable form of nature representation. So I think this is really interesting. I think first and foremost, when we're in real forms of nature, it is very rich and multi-sensory. Imagine standing in a forest, you've taken your shoes off, you can feel pine needles underneath, you can hear the gentle sway of the pine trees, you're hearing birds, you can feel the fresh air, the scent of the pine needles. You've got all of that richness in and around you. And of course, so surrounding yourself in real forms of nature is, is the, going to be the most powerful connection to it. But of course, the reality is, is so many of the spaces that we occupy and, and that we have to deal with as designers and architects don't offer that deep level of, of multi-sensory stimulation. So we have to find ways of representing it. So I think as technology evolves, it's becoming ever better at representing it. There is, of course, definite barriers. You know, the difference between a real green wall and an artificial one might be quite slim because actually artificial green walls really do look very, very similar. The color, the texture of the leaves, the reflectiveness. However, that artificial green wall won't add moisture. It won't remove toxins it won't necessarily improve the acoustics in the same way as well. So I think there are limitations. I think particularly as we start to get between three-dimensional forms of nature, like a green wall or a visual representation of that on a screen, of course, the human being can instantly recognize the difference between two and three dimensions and understand that one is real and one is artificial. But as technology evolves, it's becoming ever more difficult to to disconnect that. And we don't necessarily know when we touch or when we see a material, whether it is real or artificial. And when we touch it, it starts to add a little bit more sensory stimulation and understanding to that situation. But technology is becoming so developed and so enhanced that it is becoming more difficult. And to a certain extent, if 
that natural stimuli is still delivering on some benefit. If it's masking noise or creating an olfactory boundary that separates you from one space to another, then I don't think we should worry. I think it just becomes more painful for some people to accept that they are working with artificial elements of nature. But for everybody, there is some sort of boundary. Can I just ask you as a parting shot, uh, what three tips or however many you want to give, would you give to somebody starting out on this road? If we've energized somebody listening to this and they think, right, I'm going to do biophilic design, what are the three first steps? I think what's important is you think about your nature diet. So if you imagine that there's a, a food diet, which is essentially like a, a pyramid, and at the top is all the sort of uh, richer, maybe more carbon intensive foods that might be a luxury, and you have them kind of less occasionally. And on the bottom row, you've got the things that you know you eat every day. And in between, it's kind of what happens across the months and the weeks uh, and it gets down to the day at the bottom. So we also have essentially a triangular formed nature diet where we need to think about that nature connection. How often do we have it across the day? What constitutes a nature connection? Is it is it seeing a bird, hearing it, walking in the park? And then how do we deliver on that on a daily basis? Uh, and what is it that supports us, but also think about it on a weekly, monthly, and annual basis. And at the very top, it may be you know, a really wonderful, immersive summer holiday where you spend the whole time running through forests and up mountains and diving into lakes or the sea and reconnecting with nature. But of course, that is going to be more carbon intensive. It's enormously beneficial, but it's not necessarily viable that you'd have it all the time. So firstly, think about your nature diet as a pyramid and how that spreads across the year, but also across the different spaces that you occupy in it. Secondly, think about your obvious nature connection. You know, where does that start? Does it start with a plant on your desk? Does it start with your own garden? It's got to start somewhere and make that connection, look after something, nurture it, support it. And once you do, you'll very quickly find that you want more of it because it's so satisfying. It's so great to see your plants growing and flowering and you know leaves and new shoots coming out that you'll want more. And before you'll know it, you'll have 90 plants like me in your office and all over your home, which is no bad thing, although my, my wife might suggest otherwise. And I think thirdly, the other one is to become more mindful and conscious of your senses. Remember that the whole visual environment in front of us has been designed that way. The built environment is, is so often been designed just to delight the visual. So what are those other sensory stimuli? And how can we think about that throughout our day and use them to our advantage? So think about the haptic journey as we walk through buildings and spaces, um, the way the space sounds, the, the, the smells, the different boundaries that we get that define those spaces, the taste that we experience and use those. And in this way, it is about becoming more mindful and undertaking some level of daily mindful practice. And it doesn't mean you need to necessarily sit and meditate, but it is about just being conscious of those rich multi-sensory environments and thinking about how you can enhance your life through being more conscious of them. Oliver, it's been a joy talking to you. It's been fascinating. And I hope this has pointed the way to anybody who's interested in biophilic design. Uh, is there a, a website or somewhere they can go to find out more from you? Yes. If you go to oliverheath.com, 
You can find lots of downloadable white papers that we've written with Interface on biophilic design. So there's loads of information there. We've also got this new online course for biophilic design in the home, which will be launching in January of 2021. Wonderful. I shall be looking at that myself. So brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. It's been a total pleasure. Well, I hope you found that as inspiring as I did. Uh, nature is not just nice to have around. It's pretty much essential. Good for our happiness, good for our effectiveness and good for our well-being and can be delivered across all the senses, including sound. Thanks for listening. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how The Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.